0: Welcome to The Otherwise Podcast, Season 3. I'm your host, Casey Tigrit. I'm an author, pastor, and spiritual director. Just at the beginning here, I wanted to offer you something. I don't normally do this, but as you just heard, I said I'm an author. And uh, as an author, I write books. And one of my books uh, just so happens to be drastically on sale this week. And so I would uh, just want to point out my book, Becoming Curious, A spiritual practice of asking questions is on sale for $3.99 in the ebook version and both Amazon, Barnes and Noble, and other book retailers. So if you wanted to go and grab a copy of that, that would be awesome. If not, I totally understand. Today we handle a very delicate subject, and the question I would ask you to begin that subject is this What do you do with your suffering? As a pastor, I often get that question of why is there suffering in the world? If there is a good God, why is there suffering? Why do bad things happen? And there's a variety of ways to answer that. Probably the best way to answer is to say, I don't know. But there are other ways of answering it. Some would answer and say it's sin in a person's life. Some would say it's original sin in everyone. But what often doesn't happen is there's no instruction given on what you do with your suffering. And so what do we do with suffering is not nearly as interesting a question as what do we do when suffering lingers? And so that's why today I wanted to talk with my new friend K.J. Ramsey, whose new book, This Too Shall Last, is a reflection on her years of dealing with a physical illness, which we will talk about, that's not going anywhere. The big question is this, is God still present? and his transformation still possible, even when suffering lingers. That's what we're going to talk about today with KJ. So KJ, today we talk, and in my end of the world, there is a massive thunderstorm going on. And in the world in general, there's a massive thunderstorm going on. Yes. What is it, what is it like where you are this morning?
1: Well... Where I am, I'm in Denver, Colorado, and the sun is shining. It looks like a beautiful day. And yet it's, I'm sure, yet another day of feeling that weirdness when you walk outside, remembering that our world is still really aching and we can't hug each other and handshake and all the things. Yeah. Yeah
0: yeah and we're we're now progressing in conversations through the middle now into the latter quote unquote latter stages where uh, i I hear a lot more we're shifting back from that we're all in this together to we all got to do our own thing, please don't tell me what to do and yeah uh, that alone is challenging especially um especially for those of us in helping professions, spiritual direction or therapy like for you mm-hmm. um it's hard in times like this to have wisdom mm-hmm. and to know not just what's right, but what is wise. I wonder for you and the work that you do and the story of life that you've written about in your book, if you had to try and define the word wisdom, where would you, where would you start from, from all the wells that you draw from in life? Where would you start to define that word?
1: Well, that is a massive question. It's a really important word. and. I think of uh, something Eugene Peterson said about wisdom being I think, the art of living skillfully uh, and the actual conditions of your life. So I, I think I would say something similar because I can't get better than Eugene, let's be honest. Um, <laughs> he's the best. Uh, I think that wisdom is the art of wholeness. Formed by our willingness to be where we are as who we are, welcoming that God is with us.
0: Gosh, that's good. There's such a, I'm finding more and more people in these conversations are defining wisdom in a very embodied kind of way. Like you hear that word and you tend to think like old guy on the mountaintop with a long beard stroking it and things mm, like that. Mm-hmm. But, but I hear in you in your definition, in your beginning, I, I just hear such an embodied physical, present kind of thing. Um, I wonder how much of that comes from what you do as a therapist. Uh, how did you find your way into into work, into that kind of work? That's not something that everybody naturally falls into.
1: Yeah, and it was not my original plan for my life either. Uh, I really actually became a therapist out of my own confrontation with my body. So uh, I love that you picked up on the embodiment there because that's actually the, the central tension in my life and the thing that has propelled me into connection. With who I am, and with others, and with God, so I became a therapist out of a season of realizing that I was not going to be able to maintain a traditional career. I was working at a nonprofit um, doing like research as a research and training organization. I was doing writing and. Curriculum development and fundraising, kind of all the things. and uh, i couldn't I couldn't keep up with a regular nine to five job, but I loved the work of writing. And it was out of this having to grapple with being too sick for a regular career. and i was I think i was twenty three uh, that I saw a therapist who had a chronic illness herself, and her welcome of me and where I was, first of all, gave me space to be in my circumstances in a way that had previously felt intolerable, but also gave me a vision for the space that I could offer to others. And it was out of that that I started to really take seriously, I considered it before just because I, I love people, but it was out of that that I realized okay. I could do this and not only could I do it, like I saw it modeled to me in a way that it was possible. She was also sick. She was able through her private practice to form it in a way that would work for her body. And yeah, so that's how I became a therapist at the beginning.
0: It's, it's hard for me not to hear Henry Nowen's idea of the wounded healer and that to, to actually have embodied wisdom is to know That both we have something, a gift to be able to give, but that we also are receiving it at the same time. There's a there's also there's a conduit idea in what you're talking about, like the one who's hurting becomes a gift to the one who hurts. And in the book, you in the book that we're talking about today, This Too Shall Last, which Mm -hmm. was the title is wonderful. Uh, I love surprising titles. I love the little, like, you know, Tai Chi, Jiu-Jitsu kind of... Not Tai Chi, that's <laughs> totally nonviolent. But that sort of, I'll take your energy and I think you know... You think you know what I'm about to say and, and you don't. Yeah. Uh, you recount a lot, the a, an immense amount of your own pain and suffering and embody that in a way that is helpful for other people. Can you... Lay out a little bit of what it is that you physically deal with that that, that it sort of gives a foundation from the, from which you do everything else that you do.
1: Definitely. So I have, I live with ankylosing spondylitis AS and you don't have to say it. You don't have to try to pronounce the word.
0: I'm ashamed to say that I know that, that from sadly from a commercial. I, uh, yeah. I have well, heard the there's... seen the commercials about that, and
1: yeah, you know, actually, I'm impressed that you have heard it before because most of the time, I get the response that people have never heard of it. And the funny thing is, it's actually more common than um, MS, cystic fibros- fibrosis, and like one other disease combined. Um, but I I typically hear, I get blank stares and confusion when I tell people. So I'm actually glad that you've seen a commercial, even though I hate those commercials. But I have had AS for 11 years. And the first four, I was undiagnosed, but being treated along that trajectory. And I've lived for those 11 years with every day I have some measure of pain. So for me, AS affects especially my spine, but uh, most of my joints. And at times it's totally debilitating. There are other times that I, it, the pain is on a quieter level, but uh, it's always there. I've never been in remission. And it's this experience of pain that has been my companion that I can't kick out of my house uh, that I've had to come to terms with this wholeness that can happen where I am in a body that's broken, and a God who says that He is here, finding that He really is, often through His people.
0: Yeah. You you've had this experience of suffering with a particular physical illness, but you've also had the experience of suffering, uh, from the perspective of your gender and how that played into the beginning. We had, I had Stephanie Tate on the program on the podcast, uh, last season, and that was the first time. And I'm ashamed to say this, it's the first time I'd really been dipped in this discussion about how, how, when women present with symptoms, what doctors typically in the past have done um, yeah. to respond to that Can you talk about how that played into the beginning of your diagnosis and treatment and i think people just need to know that that's a that's a thing you know
1: right i was surprised recently someone read that part of the book and they they had not realized that that's such a common experience that when women have unexplainable pain doctors often treat us as though we are crazy, even today. And in the book, you know, I have a footnote about, like, I was, they thought I had fibromyalgia for a moment, and I have a footnote explaining, like, it is real, but it also is not what I have. And it's often, even to today, a diagnosis that doctors use when they don't have answers. And I think our bodies often portray, and maybe, like, encapsulate the the very tension at the heart of all faith which is like we want to be able to understand and control and we often cannot and the female body in unexplainable pain confronts the western assumption that we can understand and control and improve everything Mm. And so for me, uh, those first four years of being sick were some of the most painful of my life because I would walk into (laughs) or hobble into um, my doctor's appointments and often be treated like I was lying or I was exaggerating because uh, for my disease, 20% of patients um, have no... Like measurable uh, blood work or x ray signs of the disease. But as my rheumatologist says, sometimes those patients are actually the sickest and have the most inflammation. And for some mm-hmm. reason, like my blood doesn't show how much inflammation is actually happening in my body. And so, so much of my experience um, is similar to so many women out there and sometimes men too, in that. My persistent pain really was a confrontation for the people who would see me. And for many years, I felt like I had to advocate for myself or I would live the rest of my life from bed. And I wasn't willing to give up.
0: It's interesting because you, we start with the feelings in our body. And so I, I feel like as a, as a culture and especially as a, as a culture of faith, we're starting to finally break free of some of that Gnostic stuff about how the body's evil, but we're also starting to trust it a bit. And you, you exemplify that in a few chapters in the book, especially the one on emotions, like trusting the way we feel to be actually helpful. Um. But then you, so you experience this, you go, you do what every person does is you go to the doctor (laughs) and then there's nothing there. And yet the suffering remains. And so then we go to a faith and we pray and it doesn't go away. And so there's a quote that you, in the book, you say that uh, suffering feels like losing uh, yourself You talk about how pain threatens our personhood in those initial stages when there was no diagnosis and you were hobbling in and out of doctor's offices and accepting treatments. But also, you know, in the back of your head, you knew that they weren't taking you seriously. Mm -hmm. How did you did you feel like that personhood was beginning to slip from your grasp? And and what did you notice yourself doing around that?
1: Yeah, it's a I felt. I felt cut, it's like sliced right through. Like half of me was sick and the other half of me was trying to hold on to who I was. Um, I Those years are so painful. I think that being it was the willingness to feel like suffering was taking away my personhood and to na- like name that deep threat with my community including doctors but but especially with with my church and friends that was what moved me toward seeing that I'm that I still am me and I still am a person I guess what I thought one thing I I think is important to bring up is that off like in the beginning years I was often treated even by by friends or you know there. I first got sick um, at school. And so professors, there was this, this um, attitude, like don't let suffering become your identity. And I think that we need to be wildly patient with people who are suffering, trusting that God holds our identities even when we feel them slipping away because it's actually a necessary part of the process of finding your life is hidden in Christ to feel your feel suffering shattering your sense of who you are and if we try to make people who are suffering say that they are more okay than they are or not allow suffering to be as much of a part of their story or the story that they share with you, we are actually blocking them from the space where they will be made most whole and most cognizant of and aware of the embrace of God who holds us together when we cannot hold ourselves.
0: You talk about, there's a chapter in the book where you talk about that suffering is actually the place of transformation. It's it's where it happens. And I wholeheartedly agree with that. There's There's so much, when we start looking through that lens, there's so much about scripture. There's so much about Christian tradition. Even I've been reading through the Desert Fathers and Mothers, and there's so much of that. To an extreme, you know, like they did some weird junk out there in the desert, too. Mm -hmm. Uh, But there are some very powerful examples for you as you look as you look at that space of transformation. How has how has suffering transformed you? And some of this is has to do with uh, your memory. So you and I share that together, this, this passion for how our brain does memories, too. As you look back into that space of suffering, what transformational things do you notice?
1: So suffering has shifted me from a person who persistently feels abandoned and forgotten to a person who knows she is loved. And that is actively a process of God transforming my memory by meeting with me where I am and me being willing to be here. Suffering actually can bring us to a place where our sense of... God's presence and our worth can be both confronted and changed. Mm. And so for me, that has meant that in the mundane moments of my life where I deal with pain that persists. And sometimes screams and and leaves me uh, feeling like I want to escape and like how could a good God who loves me allow this by being willing to actually be in my body there and remember that i have been united to christ Mm. by faith that place becomes a whole body whole self experience of the presence of jesus by his spirit being here and my emotional memory is changed Mm. and Through that happening again and again, because of this too shall last with suffering that continues, that Mm -hmm. doesn't just go away. I am repeatedly offered these moments where I can find that God is actually here and I am actually loved by Jesus who himself suffered and who then suffers in and through me, even Physiologically here. And that changes my, even on the physical level, my brain's capacity to trust. And so it's the, it's the repetition of having to go there that actually has created a different person in me that the habit of my heart is to turn toward god mm. and the experience of my soul is that he is here i i am a different person than i was 11 years ago
0: And I would say that that perspective towards suffering runs counter to what our normal natural inclination is to say that if we are suffering, we are separated. Mm -hmm. But as you talk about it, suffering is actually what drove you closer and united you more deeply. And some of that's from a way, a traditional way of understanding some of the scriptures uh, that if there's suffering, I mean, there's a whole system of tradition a Christian tradition that's about if you're suffering clearly there's sin and you have the book of Job and you have all of that but to hear you say you know in the midst of that is when I felt like I was most united and united in suffering through the image of who Jesus was that that suffering is what connected us to him.
1: Yeah well I think it comes back to embodiment in that that sense that you said that we often Feel that suffering separates us, it's actually incredibly important for us to acknowledge that and to be willing to feel it. It's there, it's happening in our bodies. But often we are, I I think we lack the courage to be honest about it Mm. and to speak that sense of separation aloud to God and to the other people in our lives. And if we will not allow ourselves to experience that shattering, that separateness, we won't then be able to then come to the place where the place of dependency where trust can be formed mm. and where you find the face of god in christ has turned toward you yeah so it's actually that like the separateness is there there's there's a there are two kingdoms here and in suffering we're confronted with the reality that the kingdom of this world is, is passing away, but it is often the reality that we feel. But the kingdom of Christ has drawn near, and it's these moments of viscerally feeling our separateness that are actually where we could sense and taste and be wrapped in the reality that the kingdom of God has come and is coming and will be our fullest reality forever. Mm.
0: What's interesting too about the book is that you, because people listening who haven't read it yet can can think in terms of just the physical ailment that you've discussed, but suffering rarely ever travels by itself, um, especially if we're human beings, which we mm-hmm. are. There's compounding things that go along with that. So you and your husband went through some really difficult situations in ministry. Uh, even now, I mean, you, you're dealing with AS, but you're also one of the people who are filed under that horribly general category of vulnerable population in the midst of this COVID-19. How there's It's one thing to connect with God in the midst of a suffering how does it change to and to connect with God in the midst of not only something within you and in your body, but within your relationships and within this sort of sociological dynamic of I can't go outside when other people go outside. How how does that look different?
1: Yeah. Well, first I want to say that I'm glad you brought up the varied nature of suffering because, uh, my, deep heart for people who read this book. It's not just for people whose stories are just like mine. It's like all pain actually is embodied, including spiritual pain, mental pain, emotional, relational. It's embodied and relational. So it works out in how we relate to ourselves, to others and to God. And I I wrote the book to meet People where they're at in their stories of sorrow, even if they're afraid to call it suffering. So I just had to say that. But right now, as somebody who's vulnerable, as someone I'm looking at, I'm not sure if I will be able to go into stores or like mostly leave my apartment before there's a vaccine. And I'm having conversations with friends who are in similar circumstances and we're wondering, what will life look like for us? And I've you know, talked with our priest. We're um, in an Anglican church. And we're like, we're not sure when we're going to be able, when, when you guys are, are able to go back to church, it's probably still going to be a really long time till we can. And so what does it mean for us that we are part of this community, but we won't be able to gather physically for year, two years? I don't know. Um, I think the way that I have been approaching that is, again, I guess goes back to that definition of wisdom. I, I cannot control the future. And the only place that the peace of God resides is in the present. Mm -hmm. And so I have to be willing to be where I am today and to face the the sense of isolation that comes up today or the challenges that come up today with being quarantined and unable to go get the, the necessities of life for myself. And I think as I am willing and as my husband and I are willing to be where we are today, um, we experience the peace of God em- embracing us and covering us and strengthening us with the sense that we will be okay through this. So I think it's really important that we resist the way that. Fear wants to propel us into the future, and we more uh, attend that fear in our bodies. How it's rising, we notice it and we name it, and we respond to it as a prompt to be present today.
0: In the midst of um, in the midst of talking about suffering and the various kinds of it, you also talk about. The link between shame and suffering, and so there's there's a lot that goes into um, counseling and therapy that has to do with dealing with shame, and sometimes that's an embodied shame sometimes that is an a, a presumption or a long standing kind of kind of thing that we carry in us. How did you? How would you represent that for people in talking about the connection between shame and the suffering that, that we go through? And how, how does that change the transformation process when our suffering is primary, primarily coming from an emotional, more emotional kind of place? Does it, is that, how, does that distinct, how is that distinct or different?
1: So I think for all of us, whether your suffering's coming from a more primarily emotional place or your suffering is from a incurable disease like mine, we are all reckoning with shame every moment of every day because shame is actually what Satan has used from the beginning of all time to whisper and sometimes scream a story that we are going to end up alone and that therefore we have to take care of ourselves. And so firstly, shame is actually something that we feel in our bodies when we are confronted with this story, when we have the sense that we are forgotten or we have the sense that we are more fragile than is acceptable in this world or that we are too much uh or not enough and it it all comes back to that there are competing stories here and the enemy wants us to believe the story that we have to get ourselves out of the mess that we're in. And that's what sin is, is turning back in on ourselves and relying on ourselves, believing that no one else can help us. And so I think shame is actually our shared experience but it's the experience that is most commonly nameless
0: hmm.
1: and most commonly uh, happening underneath the level of our awareness. Hmm. And so when I talk about being willing to be where you are, a big part of what I'm talking about is being willing to notice you- the sense of shame that is rising in your body throughout the day in the small ordinary moments where you feel like you are not enough or you are too much or you Mm -hmm. don't have what you need. And that, that physiological experience of separateness and lack is actually what you could tend to as a place where the gospel really is real and God really has drawn near to you. And instead of the story that you are going to end up alone, you start to experience the soothing power of the God who really is here. Mm. And you start to, throughout your day, sense the realness of the Holy Spirit who dwells in us. Turning shame to peace and joy, gentleness and love. Yeah, so I think shame is is what we're all reckoning with all the time. We just don't name it and we don't pay attention to it, but we could.
0: And this is what I love about what you've written is that you, you are very realistic because you live with this and you've not made it easy. But you have brought a goodness to something that most people don't see goodness in. Um, and what a, it, it, I hope people listening to this, if you, if you think through what we've just been talking about, that in the midst of any kind of suffering, you have on one side a belief that if I pray and nothing happens, then God is not interested in it. You have a story that comes that says you are going to be alone and no, one, no one's here to help you. And then you have a. If you are in in America, if you grew up in the United States, you also have this sort of Protestant work ethic thing that says you just need to get your crap together. And those three stories coming together, the the level of toxicity there is is I I think we underestimate that in the lives of other people. I I may be wrong though. I'd love to hear your perspective on that.
1: No, I think we one hundred percent underestimate that power the toxicity of those storylines. We think, I I can't tell you how many people and how often in my own life, I think, well, I didn't didn't grow up in a prosperity gospel church. So I don't really believe that more effort and faith will bring blessings, but my body does. We have been soaking up these storylines our whole lives. And I think it comes back to the way that we actually dichotomize our heads from our hearts and bodies. Yeah. In that, we think if we cognitively and rationally state that the story of the gospel that we believe is that we don't have to earn God's favor, then that's actually what we will live. Right. But we don't realize. And acknowledge that our bodies and hearts are actually experiencing things that our minds are too afraid to state or notice. And we all have been swimming in this toxic sea of scarcity and striving and self sufficiency. But there is a stronger song. And it's the song of God's love and his sufficiency. And I, I believe with all my heart, because it's been my experience, that suffering that lingers can actually be the prompt that helps you hear the stronger song of God's love. Just because it confronts that story of self-sufficiency over and over again, because it makes you face over and over again that you can't be self-sufficient. And that is good news. That is grace, because you never were meant to be. You never were meant to be. Instead, there's a God who loves us, and there are people to whom we could be connected and received by and whom we could receive with love too. And it's that communion with one another and with God that is what our hearts most long for. Mm -hmm. Suffering actually ushers you into this possibility of singing a much more beautiful and strong song.
0: Mm. To hear you say that and to know that you've You've walked for 11 years primarily with a, a disease that is not going anywhere that you've befriended, as well as the other challenges and pressures that come with work and marriage and disappointment and ministry is, is a very powerful thing. And what a gift that you have to give to your, your clients and to the world around you. I'm just wondering, uh, as you wrote this book, what was your hope for people who would pick it up and read it? What is the, what's the gift that you hoped to give them?
1: So my hope when people pick up This To Shall Last is that it sparks curiosity and courage to be present in their own lives and stories. I tried to write with honesty and vibrancy to spark our imaginations and our own processes of reflection so that people who are reading it cannot help but be moved emotionally. There's a reason there's a tear on the front. (laughs) I have been told by many people, like, um, you know, don't read this book if you're afraid of Kleenex. And I hope, I do hope that it moves you to feel your emotions and the the feelings surrounding your story in a way that you don't normally give yourself permission to. So curiosity and courage that perhaps your story is part of Christ's. That's what I hope and pray happens in some small measure for those who read This Too Shall Last.
0: Yeah. Well, thank you for doing that and thank you for giving that gift. And thanks for talking through this with us. This is the end and we're recording this at the end of your launch week. So I know a lot of you've been doing a lot of things. So thank you for giving the time and energy to to talk with us.
1: Thank you for having me. It's been a joy and you are a great conversationalist. So <laughs> it's it's been it's been a joy to get to talk with you.
0: There have been a lot of conversations I've had about suffering in my life. I don't know that any of them have been like that. It was wonderful to talk with KJ and her honesty and her, her simplicity and also her willingness not to gloss over things was incredibly refreshing. And so I would ask you, are you remaining? Are you paying attention in the midst of the suffering that you're going through? What invitations? Or invitation is God extending to you in the midst of this difficult time you're in? No matter what, it might be a physical ailment, it might be a relationship conflict, it might be suffering through your faith. Are you being present to that moment and seeing God in the midst of it? Paying attention to the invitations that might be there. And if not, maybe today is the day to take one step in that direction. KJ Ramsey is a therapist, a writer, and a recovering idealist who believes sorrow and joy are necessary friends. Her writing has appeared in Christianity Today, Relevant Magazine, The Huffington Post, Health Central, Fathom Magazine, The Mighty, and Introvert Dear, You can find out more about KJ on her website, which will be in the show notes, and her book that we've been talking about, This Too Shall Last, Finding Grace When Suffering Lingers, released last week, so it's brand new hot off the presses and is available to you now. Thank you for listening if you're listening on iTunes or Spotify, thank you so much. Would you please subscribe and rate and review the podcast? That would be really helpful for me. If you're listening via my website and streaming it, thank you for doing that as well. And I pray that if you are in a season of suffering right now, that somehow something in this conversation was encouraging to you. And then if nothing else, realize in the image of Jesus, in the example of Jesus, we have one who bore suffering and came through so that we might, we might identify and carry on even in the midst of our sufferings. So until next time, be well, live wisely, peace, friends.